Well, hey there, Green Team. Welcome back to the Green Team Academy podcast. We're doing this live today with Julian Collier of Counting Coral, and this is going to be a super fun one. Um, so I just want to say hi to Julian first. How are you doing, Julian? Oh, I'm good. Thank you, Joan. I appreciate you having us on today. Yeah, so excited about that. So before, so so what we're going to be talking about with Julian is a very innovative way to get in there and uh, be doing something proactively to be protecting and restoring the reefs and working with the local communities um, through art. And so we're going to hear more about that in a second. Um, but first, I want to tell you a little bit about what we have coming up with the International Climate Action Challenge. Um, we have the Impact Summit, which will be December 13th to 17th. And you guys, this is so exciting because we've been writing up all the, starting to write up the challenger profiles. Um, so we had over a hundred people sign up for this 90 day challenge from over 20 countries. And so we're starting to see the results and we're gonna be sharing what people have done in 20 days or in 90 days. And so if you would like to be a sponsor or you know a, uh, an eco-friendly business or a government organization that has a program or you're a nonprofit, we have very uh, affordable sponsorships and we would love to have you as part of this. We have all kinds of cool things that we're doing. We have a virtual um, exhibit area and we have opportunities for sponsors to engage with the attendees and help get your message out too. So just wanted to make sure that I didn't forget that because once I start talking about coral, I'll probably forget all that. Uh, so if you're hanging out with us today, thanks, doing it live, thanks so much. Put a, a comment there and uh, we'll try and get to your questions if we can as we go. All right. Okay, so with that, I want to um, just set the stage here. So Julian Clark, Julian Collier is the, the founder and the CEO of Counting Corals, which is a nonprofit. Um, and I, I'm just going to turn it over to you, Julian, to, to tell a little bit about what, first, what is your, what was your background? Like what got you so interested in, in coral? I, I hear that you are kind of an ocean guy um, you're living in Arizona for a minute, uh, right now, but what, what brought you to this area of passion? There's so many different things that we could be working on. Well, you know, you've got to start with the passion and obviously, uh, as you said, I'm an ocean person. I grew up by the seaside, jumping off of cliffs, uh, snorkeling and just having a great time with my friends and, you know, just enjoying the ocean as much as you possibly can as a young child. And I was very fortunate enough to be able to move to Los Angeles, California at 19 years old. And as you can imagine, being in Malibu, you're at the epicenter of surf culture and ocean culture. So it was a natural progression for me to jump back in the water again. And obviously there's waves in um, California. So we started body surfing and surfing and just having a whale of a time as a young adult in uh, Malibu, California, enjoying all those aspects of the beautiful weather that's there. It's almost sun shining every single day. So it's really <laughs> just a magical place to be in the ocean. Um, and then, you know, fast forward a little bit from there, I really got into traveling a lot and uh, I'm an avid traveler. I love it. 
um, and I got into diving in California. So one of my big trips was to spend a year traveling around the globe, specifically going around looking for nature. And the reason why I say that is because um, back in the day, climate issues weren't quite as prevalent as they are now. However, I was very keenly aware of the climate issues that were going on in my early 20s. I've been a vegetarian all my life, uh, and as soon as I went into the ocean, I stopped eating fish. So I quit that, and then I went to, uh, on, my tr on my trip, I went to Fiji as one of my first stops. And it was all kind of tropically related, you know, um, Great Barrier Reef, uh, Thailand, Malaysia, and all these places. But Fiji was the first stop. And I went to an island resort on a first, like, you know, touristy thing where you jump on the boat and you're off to a reef and they do a picnic on an island. And it was just like magical, right? So I jump in the water with a snorkel and I looked at coral for the first time and I almost cried. It was just so incredibly beautiful and incredibly special that that permeated in my mind for many years. And it took me about maybe four years after that trip. And that trip was a year long, and obviously I'd, I'd gone to the Great Barrier Reef and dove, the, dove that reef, and I went to some magical places in Thailand, diving on those reefs and in Malaysia. So the reef just started permeating in my mind and ocean. Uh, the, the beauty of the ocean is unbelievable when you're in those environments. Crystal, crystal clear water to dark, dark blue to turquoises. It's just incredible. So it was just so inspiring. So what I decided to do was just one day, I'm a lot, I like surfing, but I'm also more of an observer. I love to observe human people, human beings doing a magical things. Now that could be mountain bikers to, you know, hiking or climbers or surfers and all that. So I just decided one day, this was going to be my next career move. Uh, I was going to buy an underwater housing camera an underwater, uh, uh, sorry, a camera that goes in that housing, and I'm going to go down to Fiji and start filming surfers and making money. So I did exactly that. I went and bought a camera. I've really got no experience with camera editing or any of that. I bought a Mac laptop uh, and a hard drive that only had 100 gigs on it. It was tape uh, back in those days. It wasn't digital. So it was very complicated and hard to videotape, edit, and be able to produce content for people down there. But I did it anyway. So it was a beautiful thing. We'd go out on the boat every day for four or five hour surf sessions. I'd jump in the water, start filming surfers. Uh, and inherently, when you're in the water waiting for surfers, surfing's not that easy. So sometimes you wait quite a long time for that surfer to drop on the wave to capture that very brief moment before they get to you in the water. And it's very quick. It's a matter of seconds. So I would spend a lot of time filming the reef and keeping my head underwater. I'd pop back up and go, are they coming? Uh, no, put my head back down and filming reef. And that's where the passion for it all began was that one initial trip off to um, Fiji. And then fast forward to me uh, creating somewhat of a career there uh, to filming reefs and filming surfers. So that's where the passion came from. Wow. What a story. And yeah, that's so true. I, um, my husband and I, when, when we were just getting married, we both um, got be in our like months leading up to our wedding, we both got certified as scuba divers. And, um, and then, uh, you know, doing those first couple of dives, and seeing all that 
other it's like it's an otherworldly experience because it's another world and it's just as you said it's so magical and so rich um and the colors and the the types of life and that you're moving around in you know in 3d it's it's really i i agree with you it's it's a very profound moving experience that that changes you pretty much yeah. instantly yes 100 percent. it's uh, it changes you to a level that you can never forget really and so for me life is about experiential knowledge it's the accumulation of experiences and that experiences gives you knowledge. When I'm on my deathbed, I'm not going to think about the Ford Explorer I used to own when I was 19 or the, <laughs> you know, the nice paint job I did in my living room or the couch I used to sleep on. It'll be those moments where I'm hurtling down a mountain on a snowboard or diving in a coral reef and having a first shark encounter. So that's what I've always lived my motto by is the accumulation of experiential knowledge uh, will help me grow as a human being and be more conscious and more mindful of everything around me. Yeah, exactly. I'm with you. And I think that's what that international travel does is you're gathering experiences rather than things. And the more things you have, the less easy it is to, uh, to do that. All right. So, so Julian, I want to go ahead and share my screen and tell people a little bit, show people, I guess, just to start with, this idea of of counting coral and so maybe as i'm pulling this up do you want to um well let's see before we do that you want to just give us kind of a quick overview of what was your idea with counting coral and then i'll go ahead and share the screen yeah so counting coral is an uh, uh we are essentially a reef restoration nonprofit so we enable and help people to restore reefs uh, specifically at the moment down in Fiji and um the way we do that is we donate sculptural marine parks to coral gardeners essentially these are the guys that are working under the water every single day to cultivate coral and help propagate them and plant them back out onto the existing reef. So sometimes what can happen in what we call a coral bleaching and a coral bleaching is essentially coral die off. Um, it's a shame that they use this word coral bleaching because it really doesn't sell, sell the story. And the story is we have mass coral, coral die off getting more and more frequently every single year at this point. It used to be every five to 10 years. Now it was 2015, 2016, 2017, 2020. It's happening more and more regular. We've lost 50% of all coral life on the planet in 30 years. And we're losing a really, really large amount every single year. And it's predicted we're going to lose it all in another 30 years. Now that is, you know, an entire animal species gone in less than 60 years. So we provide coral nurseries essentially to these coral gardeners. Now these nurseries serve uh, a different kind of, serve a different purpose from your regular coral nursery. A coral, regular coral nursery is basically a table that sits on the ocean floor and you can plant out coral on this table. Well, they're not exactly the most attractive things, right? So how do you spread the message of coral die-off or coral restoration work? It's not a picture of a, you know, kelpie kind of 
algae infested table with coral growing on it. You have to sell the message a little bit differently. So what we do is we donate these sculptural marine parks to these guys doing really good work as awareness drivers. So these parks can be planted out directly with coral. And that's a very unusual thing in terms of ocean artwork. There's a lot of incredible uh, artists out there, amazing human beings doing some credible artwork and sinking it in the ocean. And it's fantastic. However, they're not designed to grow coral on them. So my concept was if we can design something, we can plant coral directly onto it, it becomes a massive awareness driver because it's specifically designed for that. So as soon as we sink it in the water, we're putting coral on it and coral's growing and it looks amazing. So then divers come, they start taking pictures. This is a shareable moment on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, LinkedIn, you name all the platforms, right? <laughs> this is a shareable image that is now going to permeate across the globe as opposed to just these guys doing this humble, quiet work in these remote places, growing coral to save it, and nobody knows about it. Wow. So it's You can like give that. me a million dollars, and I can go plant coral for 10 years. No one's going to know I've done that work. You give me a million dollars, and I put a coral nursery in the ocean floor, and I grow coral on it, people are going to know about it. So there's, there's a few other little things that goes on with that, yeah, um, let's let's go ahead and show that um, that little video. I'm not sure. We'll see. I was going to try and turn the sound down. I'm not sure if that'll work or not. But let's show a couple seconds of it so people can see it. Um, let's see. Here we go. Hey, so I am super excited to share this with you guys. I've built a full scale model of what we're going to do. Yeah, so we usually build a full-scale model before we uh, actually go to the cutting process because this material that we use is extremely expensive. And it's not exactly the most cost-effective, but it's the most um, sustainable over time. So we use marine-grade stainless steel, um, mm. which is probably six, seven times more expensive than any other steel on the planet but it will last a 400 years plus all day long. No wow. So this is a very long lasting material that doesn't degrade and break down into the ocean. So you have different grades of steel. Typically most coral gardeners use mild steel and that's a corrosive material. So you can grow coral on it, but the corrosion builds up under the coral, the coral falls off. So mm -hmm. we really put our heads into this. We didn't just do this on like a whim. It's been months and months and months of design work. <coughs> Wow. <laughs> so um, how does this involve the communities? <clears throat> we were talking about that a little bit earlier. So this is the beauty about this, right? So it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a tool that the coral gardeners can use. And I'm just going to go through the whole process so everybody understands it. We install these sculptures, marine biologists, scientists, and coral gardeners plant coral on it. What we do is we label each sculpture with a number on it. So those guys can keep track of each sculpture and each piece of coral on that sculpture. So then it becomes a study site for these guys to be able to work with. It's not just some random table with a whole bunch of corals on it or a coral tree floating in the ocean with dangling pieces. 
This is a study site. Now, we, this is really important because we have to grow um, resistant, heat resistant corals. So it's a great way to be able to identify which corals have been placed where on the sculpture and watch them grow and see how they uh, see how they are affected by ocean temperatures warming and coral bleaching. It's a great way, right? And then we have the the um, the awareness driver by divers and everybody taking pictures and sharing on social media. But then what we do is we encourage, and what we don't do is we don't plop these in the middle of the ocean where no one goes to them. We plop them in areas where tourism is really highly active. So our sculptures actually alleviate a bit of pressure off of existing reefs and bring divers to our attraction. What people don't understand about the dive industry is, yeah, it's wonderful you go down, but there is a, oh, a huge percentage of novice divers. They end up grabbing the reef, snapping the reef, and believe it or not, they trample it. One of the third causes of coral die-off is di uh, divers and snorkeling standing on coral and basically trampling it to death. So that's another reason why we're doing these sculptures is to alleviate that diver pressure. So we're in a tourist area, we get divers to come out, get off the reefs, enjoy our park. But those dive operators now have a vested interest and they become stakeholders in what we've done because those sculptural gardens are an, a revenue stream for them and an added marketing opportunity all the way down to the people booking uh, the tourists. So your travel agents to the hotels, to the dive operators, restaurants benefit. There's a huge chain of people that benefit financially from our installations. But what we do is we ask all these dive operators in the local area to recognize that we've just put in a $60,000 sculptural garden. You're now benefiting from it. This was a donation from us. We didn't sell it to these guys. We asked them to upcharge the tourist and sell the idea of, hey, guys, do you want to come dive on this really cool sculptural art piece? It's been designed to help save coral. It grows thousands of fragments of coral. That can be, they tell a story. They upcharge to those tourists, then they donate that money to us, and we take that money and put it into the community for community projects like, and I'll use Fiji as an example because that's where we're doing our installations. Fiji um, is very unique in the sense that the locals own the reef rights. So you have uh, the clansmen, the families, and an island could have four villages on that island, and each village has a reef right. So we go to these reefs, we go to the villages, say, hey, guys, do you mind us putting this sculpture in there? There's going to be some money for you that comes out of it. So these dive operators upcharge, donate to us. Then we go do community projects like maybe adding a pump in a well so they can pump water out or a uh, wash block or, or some solar panels. We're not talking, you know, massive projects here because we don't see the revenue coming in you know, by the tens of thousands, but it will add up to maybe 1,200 to 1,500 to 2,000 that we can do some really good work in the villages. So when I come up with this concept and idea, I designed it in such a way that it's a full circle thing. Everybody benefits from the coral gardeners all the way to the people giving us the right the rights to plant this on the reef. And everybody in between becomes stakeholders, investors in this opportunity. Wow. That's, that's great because I, I do think that's a lot. There's, you know, the environmental movement has failed. That I mean, where we are right now, what what people have been doing hasn't worked, and um, I think that that's a really important thing that we need to do is think about 
stop doing the things that aren't effective. And a lot of times they, this coming in and, you know, telling people don't fish, don't whatever, um, you know, you're where it's, it's not a benefit to the local community or they can't see it, you know, is their immediate, their immediate need is feed the family. And if you just tell them just stop, then that's not a, you know, that's not a solution. That's like, that's white supremacy or something, you know, just coming in and um, uh, saying, okay, well, you know, we're food secure and we want to impose this thing on you. So I really like that your solution is, is really community-based and, and, and that's, that's really cool that Fiji has the, the reef rights. That's, that's a really neat concept to, to keep them. I know as when I was in Costa Rica, the, the local indigenous group, their whole thing was taking care of SIBO's gifts. That was their whole kind of uh, religion and their whole framework that that's what their job was, was being stewards of nature. I think every indigenous culture has that. And when we can get back to that, we're at more of a point of power. Well, so it reaches a point where um, sustainability in those environments don't exist because uh, we can use reefs as an example. And there's a, one other element that I'd like to mention to the audience is when everybody becomes a stakeholder, then everybody has a, a benefit to it. So the very last beneficial thing that we try and work on is creating marine protected areas with our sculptures. So in other words, we can go to a dead reef. We can say to the chief, hey, we want to put, you know, a sculptural marine park in there. We start growing coral. We start rejuvenating that coral. Fish start to come back. Everyone can see the benefits of that. Now we can go to those villages and say, hey, go fish your heart's content. But guess what? Those fish are going to be gone. And the coral is going to die again. Or we say to them, now that you're invested, now you're seeing revenue coming in, let's create a marine protected area. And it doesn't have to be like the entire reef. It can be a part of that reef and it can be a migrating part of that reef. And I think what a lot of the um, environmentalists get stuck on is like, well, we, we create this marine protected area and that's it. Those borders never change. And it's a big failure in the engine of understanding that you are implementing you know, your kind of uh, views onto cultures that have been using these reefs for hundreds of years. So if you say to them, look, we'll let you, we're not going to fish for two years on this reef. Let's see how it goes. And then we'll start to move those borders from X to Y. And then you can go fish in this abundant area for a limited amount of time. And then that biomass actually spills out of these MPA areas, marine protected areas, so they can fish outside of these borders also. So if you understand that we can move these around and don't be so rigid in the fact that it's got to be stay a marine protected area for the end of time, we can win this war of, um, or not the war, the balance between these local communities and the governments that are saying, we need to shut it all down, you know, and oh, to be fair, governments don't do that anyway. It's more the environmental <laughs> people. So, you know, it's the environmental people that push the government lobbies uh, to push for MPAs. And I think it, it, you know, they're trying to do that in Fiji right now. They're trying to do 30, what's called a 30%, um, 30 by 30, 30% 30 of all marine areas protected by the 2030. 
But what I understand very, very keenly is you have to make highways. So you can't just block out a marine area. You have to block out little pockets and have roads that people can fish within all of these areas. So it's not blanketing a reef and, oh, guess what? You've got to drive four miles out to the sea to catch fish now because that's not fair. Allow channels and areas within these protected areas. Because what we know is when you protect an area, marine biomass explodes to 400% more than what it used to be in some cases. So you have this abundance, share it, let people fish and use these areas in a different way. And I don't think anybody's actually saying that or putting on it, putting that on the table just yet. Yeah. And I do, I do think it's that, it's that balance and, you know, that, that human beings are one of the species that we need to protect and the, these communities in it, especially who have been traditionally living in in harmony um and it's only you know whoever who knows what's happened over the last hundred years or so that that things have gotten out of balance and so making it a community something that really works for the community long term um seems well, like the Fiji kind of suffers in that sense right so all the island chains uh banned from tourists since the 80s they've only just opened it up so what's happened is uh, you've got 320 islands. You know, a ton of those now have resorts on them. Those resorts are fishing like mad to supply free food, essentially. They don't have to buy fish. They go out and fish it. So they have fishing tours. Hey, let's go fish. You, we're, we're charging you to catch fish to feed you in the resort. That we're charging you money to eat. <laughs> you know what I mean? But they're taking all the resources that the local people used to have. Right. So, and then you've got big fishing companies coming in, like the Japanese and the Chinese, and they're making deals with Fiji to say, hey, we'll give you X amount of dollars, let us fish your seas. They go and take all the bigger fish out. And all these local people are sitting here going, what, what has just happened to our community? Yeah. We've lost yeah. all our, our fish. We're right. losing our reefs now. And guess what? Everybody else is benefiting but these people. So I wanted to make it, sh- well, I wanted to make sure that we could put back into that community if we were going to do something and benefit from it, you know? Even though. Right. And empower, you know, as you said, empower them as stakeholders and, yeah. and building that kind of. Um, of that kind of framework. Um, I wanted to make sure that we talked about this idea of, so if people are interested in what you're doing, they want to be able to support you. Um, I like that you have a um, an investment page. So let me see if I can bring that up real quick so that we could talk about that for a minute. Cause you know, this is a, this is something is like, how do we actually fund um, this this work that we want to be doing. So do you want to tell us a little bit about how that, how does that work? If, if you, if somebody wants to support your work, what's your idea around that? Well, so it's pretty simple and I'll, uh, how long have we got? Have I got at least five minutes on this one? <laughs> sure, um, we'll take five minutes. We have okay. three, but we'll make it five. <laughs> okay. So five minutes. Imagine that uh, every single day you go on the road and you pay road tax. Every time you register your car, you pay registered tax. Every time you um, you know, buy a house, you have land tax, land rate tax. Every single tax you can imagine. You buy food, cigarettes, alcohol, uh, restaurants, everywhere you go, you pay tax. Guess what? We never pay tax to nature ever. 
So why I use the word invest is you're investing in nature every time you support a nonprofit. Nonprofit, unfortunately, are at the low end of the investment page for anybody looking to do any good. You go to a nonprofit, and yet we have the hardest work and hardest jobs in the world. Our revenue streams are less than any business model on the planet. And yet we're the frontline workers that are going to get the good work done because no one else is doing it. And yet we have all the disadvantages piled on top of us like a stack of bricks. So when I say invest, think about nature as a tax. Every time you buy a cup, lamp, plate, table, piece of flooring for your house, paint on the walls, that is a resource that's been stolen from nature and no one has ever given back. If you look at it as a business model, people would be going to jail if they approached it like this. I'm going to go to a restaurant, eat food, walk out the door and not pay you. I'm going to, you know, <laughs> take your house, walk in it, live in it and kick you out. Uh, that's what nature's like. We go into a forest, we chop it down, we build skyscrapers. Well, we're not putting anything in. We're not saying to nature, we really appreciate your efforts. You're an incredible thing. It's no longer mother nature. It's now the tax collector that's going to knock at your door and take everything from you very, very quickly. Because if we don't pay our mortgage, there's a lien on a house <laughs> and the tax man comes and sells it at auction. So that's what's nature's happening. We've got more storms, more voracious fires. Nature is saying, hey, you haven't paid in. I'm coming to collect. So invest in the future. Donate to nonprofits, whether it's us, you guys, whomever. These are the guys doing the good work. Yeah, indeed. And I agree that investment word. The, the, the example I always love is that, have you ever seen the pictures of the people, um, the photo I've seen, I think is from China where people are on ladders with little, um, tiny little uh, brushes and they're pollinating. They're pollinating from one flower to the next. And it's like, this is, this is an example of what nature is doing on our behalf, that bees are out there doing this incredibly detailed and uh, massive amount of work and nobody's paying them. And as you said, we're just kind of, you know, it's like hiring employees, never paying them, but taking the, the fruits of their labor. Um, and so we definitely need to to turn that around. So your, your model, so you have all these different sponsorship or uh, investment levels. You can do a one-time donation. You can do a, uh, a monthly donation, which, which would be a really cool thing. It's like public radio says, you know, when you do this monthly, then we know what we can plan on. Um, so that's a great idea to, to, have that opportunity out there for people. Well, I just look at it like this. If you're looking to donate to us, look at it like this. I would rather you donate $10 a month and then just forget about it than the one-time donation of $50 or the one-time donation of 100 Because if you think of it as an investment, then you are consistently investing instead of saying to yourself, oh, I'm just going to do it the one time and I've done my bit. Reality is you haven't done your bit at all. You've just participated in one time. But if you do it monthly, you're participating and you're making commitment to yourself morally and justly for the environment and the planet. And you're saving an incredible life form that is already already 50% of it's gone. So Yeah. Well, um, and I, I think the other thing, is, it's kind of like when I, um, the, so in the book, The Climate Action Challenge and in the challenge itself, we're moving 
you know, our model is coaching and we understand that people don't change based on information. They, you want transformation, not information. And so, you know, even something like that, like being involved with somebody on a long-term basis and being emotionally invested and maybe like, Hey, there's these people that are doing this and, you know, maybe starting a small group that you, you start sharing the word. Um, but taking it from, and I, again, the problem with our previous kind of environmental failures is I think these big organizations, you sign up and the first thing you get is a request for a donation or sign a petition. And it's like, well, is that all you see me as? And that that creating these partnerships, so people that could be invested for the long haul and could be messengers and bringing other ideas of how to get this message out there and other places that these sculptures could go and other ways to to be protecting um, the coral, doing the important work. Well, so there's another way to look at this, right? So... You will pay 10 to $15 to watch Netflix. Now, a lot of people watch series. So essentially, you're paying to watch <laughs> a storyline. Right. right. So yeah. give us the $10 a month and watch our storyline because we have an amazing story. And you can follow us and you can see the traction and you can see the benefits. And there's actually a gift at the end of it because you know you've done something. You may not be let down by the storyline on Netflix, you know what I mean? You won't yeah, you be, let... be part of the story. Yeah, you can be a part of it and we won't let you down, you know? You're gonna see what we do, you know? So. Exactly, yeah, that's a great analogy. <laughs> All right, well, thank you so much for joining, Julian. Um, so the website is countingcoral.org. Dot com, uh, actually. Dot com, okay, yeah. thank you for hopping in there. Um, and, um, you saw, you can invest, you can go watch the videos and see what all they're doing. So if you know anybody that is interested in, in protecting coral, maybe it's, you know, students or somebody that's trying to figure out how to get involved. Uh, I know one thing that we didn't even talk about, you had mentioned earlier that you have an intern that's doing a lot of youth advocacy kind of work. So there's a lot of ways to get involved, um, other than just um, being a sponsor, uh, being an investor. Um, So definitely check out Counting Coral and we'll take it from there. So thanks so much, Julian, for joining us. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you taking the time and scheduling this for us. Yeah, well, it was a lovely trip as you were describing, you know, just being in the ocean. That's, yeah, that's just such a memorable, a memorable thing. And I think, you know, we're all 70% water. We're part of the ocean. It's just in our, in our DNA. And um, so thank you so much for everything that you guys are doing. And thanks for joining us today. All right. And Susan just said, great job. Thank you. Um, Thanks, Susan. (laughs) All right. Have a beautiful day, everybody. Okay. Bye.